You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. We're actually going to be in Genesis chapter 11 into the first three verses of uh, chapter 12. And I think I've only got about an hour and a half today, if you guys are cool with that. Uh, just kidding. Um, I don't know. It may happen. We'll see. But um, really excited about this passage. So this is going to conclude our Genesis study this year. Um, we've worked all the way through the first 11 verses, um, and we'll kind of talk through uh, a little bit of what's to come after that. But while you're turning there, I kind of wanted to, to get our minds thinking a little bit uh, with a little bit of introduction story. I heard a story of a tragedy recently that I think will help us frame our discussion. There was a young man raised in a pretty good family, uh, pretty moral home, pushed him to succeed. Uh, he went on to graduate high school and college. Furthermore, he went and finished a master's degree pretty close to the top of his class. Um, even did some time in military service for our country during some of the most difficult and treacherous times in our history. Um, he met uh, a, a young woman who was also very successful. He landed the job, she landed the job. They were in a great industry. Um, they married and had three children. Um, their careers were going great. And, you know, even though they were providing well for their family, they were doing a pretty good job at balancing family work-life balance. If you figure that out, let me know. Um, and so they prioritized the family well. They spent pretty good time, you know, with the, with the kids, but also worked really hard. Um, and, and then, you know, all the children, honestly, as they grew older, went on to some sort of success, you know, in, in their own right. Um, and, and the husband and wife, they grew older, as time does to us all, and they made for incredible grandparents. Spent a lot of good time with their grandkids. Uh, they were incredible role models to the children and to the grandchildren. In fact, most of their life, they were really actively involved in a lot of nonprofits, a lot of even local com- committees with their community, and um, they were always willing to help a neighbor out. Um, as they grew older, the community involvement it only advanced, and many would come to know them as some of the most influential people in their community. Um, It was one of those scenarios where if you needed something, you knew who to call. Um, Each of them lived actually into their 90s. Um, Their funerals were very well attended. They had incredible legacies for a lot of people, including their family members. And even to this day, because their lives were so full and so moral that their grandkids still talk about how they can be more like grandma and grandpa. Tragic. And you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, it sounds like a pretty sweet deal, right? Where, where's the failure? You know, what, why, I mean, in fact, this is probably a picture of what a lot of us see around us, and if we're honest with ourselves, it's a picture that we often will choose to pursue. Yet I want you to pay close attention to the finer print, and, and if I were to ask you rhetorically, I want you to define the purpose of the, that life. How would you define it? Notice I didn't say, did they do anything good? Well, they did some good things, right? But how would you define the purpose of their life? Was it comfort? Was it monetary gain? Was it self-preservation? Was it the preservation of others? Was it security of life? Was it reputation in front of others? Or maybe even financial stability or legacy? Maybe, Maybe even someone who would be considered to contribute to making the world a better place. Sounds pretty sweet. The question I want to get our minds wrapped around and kind of thinking about is, is, is all that a mirage? Like, really? Like, like honestly, when it really, when, when everything fades away, what, what does any of that matter? And, and look, 
what we're not going to get into is the philosophy behind all this because, yes, it matters to do these things. But ultimately, if that's all you give your life to and this life ends, I mean, can, can we really keep our reputation intact with everyone around us? Like, is that even possible? Can we, can we really self-preserve ourselves? I mean, who do we just pray for? You think just last week or a few months ago, the Ukrainians felt like they were pretty safe and secure in life? And all it took was a few tanks. And now everything's flipped upside down. So, so what if it all fades away? What does it matter? And, and if we're honest about these thoughts, the futility of life comes blazing before us. Now, granted, our culture doesn't like to think about these things. They like to define success in ways that I just gave you, maybe even then some. They probably would have added maybe a, 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 an influencer Twitter account and maybe uh, a platinum record or a few million dollars, maybe a house in Maui. You know, I mean, we could go down the list. But at the end of the day, that, that, that's honestly how the world would define success. And I think the tragedy in this is that we see it everywhere around us. It doesn't describe the picture of every life that we might want. But I'd be willing to bet that it describes a type of life that most of the people that you and I interact with on a daily basis are pursuing. And furthermore, it describes a type of life that you and I's heart will absolutely run hard after if we're not killing that type of temptation. In chapter 11 in the book of Genesis, we're front row spectators at one of the clearest, most futile attempts in scripture to ignore and run from what the Lord is asking his people to do. In fact, um, Pastor Michael mentioned this last week. Uh, chapter 11 is actually not in chronological order. I know all of you this past week, since you knew we were studying chapter 11, you read chapter 11 probably 15 or 20 times. You prayed through it. You meditated on it. Um, I'm pretty confident you probably uh, laid out the chiastic structure and um, but, but all jokes aside, if you're reading even this morning, you may think, well, wait a minute, we just went through chapter 9, chapter 10, and it looks like there's already multiple languages and multiple cultures and multiple nations, and now we're back to one nation, one language in chapter 11. Well, good, you're a careful reader. Here's how we would explain that. Um, the uh, Chapter 11 is actually the detailed description of how we got to chapter 9 and 10. So uh, an example would be like if you tell a story, for instance, hey, Taylor, tragic accident on 94, three fatalities. <gasps> what happened? And then I begin to tell her in chronological order how that tragedy took place. That's what's happening in chapter 11. 9 and 10 is the outcome moving into Genesis. Chapter 11 is how it happened. So follow me as we watch the details of God's divine judgment as his people disobeys. Let's read the first four verses again, chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there, and they said to one another, come, let us build. Come, let us build. I'm just summarizing here. It, at the end of the day, they're, they're going to do a lot of things we're going to talk through. Uh, build, make bricks and make them strong and put mortar between them. And they're going to build. They're going to do a lot of stuff, and we'll walk through that. But I just say, come, let us build. And I said it twice on purpose because they say it twice, and then God says it once. And, and you may be thinking, wait a minute, like, they moved. You know, they moved from one place to another. Why wouldn't they build? Like, they need a place to, to hang their hat. If you move from one place to another place, 
you would want a place to land too, right? So you may be thinking, wait a minute, what's what's the deal? They, so in verse three, you see this like in-depth process of, of resourcefulness. By the way, they didn't have Lowe's and Home Depot back then, so they had to make their own bricks. So they made their bricks and then they fired them to make them stronger. And then they used this stuff called bitumen. In fact, some people would um, argue that it's kind of like asphalt. It's really not. It looks a lot like asphalt. It's like shiny in color and it smells sulfurous. Um, it's, it's honestly known to be a lot around the Dead Sea. It's, it's basically mud. So they took this mud and they fired these bricks and they, they began to build. And then, uh, you know, when we stop here and think, that's, that's some pretty great links. Like, that's not like, hey, I went down and got a load of lumber and, you know, I put, put a bookshelf together real quick. But they say, come let us build. And, and it's interesting to me, when I was young, I remember, I've not heard many sermons on this passage. I mean, everybody references Babel because it's, you know, I mean, for a number of reasons, it's kind of an important story in the scripture. Um, but I, I've never really heard anyone think through it. And I remember as a young kid, I'm thinking, why, why is it a big deal? Why, why does it matter? They moved and they need a place to stay. They need some kind of security. They're just trying to start a civilization. You know, in fact, one writer that I found said that they were trading in their tents for a townhome, right? So it's like big deal, moving on up in the world. I used to love that show, The Jeffersons. I'm showing my age a little bit, but it's one of my favorite shows. Like they moved up to a deluxe apartment in the sky, big deal. But I think what we're missing here is the key point of context. If you look back in chapter nine, verse seven, what does God tell them to do? Now this is post flood. He destroyed the entire earth, right? And they're not far removed from that, right? They're the, they're the generation right after. In verse seven of chapter nine, he says, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. In other words, spread out, scatter, Skedaddle. That's right. So back to this construction project. Now, why is it a problem for them to build? It is from this context, from the context of God directly commanding his people to scatter, that we have to read verses 3 and 4. So they have migrated as a group. And now they are building a civilization in a place together. That's a problem. You see where the problem is? So this is like the first step in their disobedience for what God has asked them to do. So they came together instead of going out. They pursued their own unity and their own identity instead of unifying with God and identifying with his commands. And they were fearful of scattering. So they chose to become insular with this sense of false security. That's what we're watching happen. Oswald and Ross, two well-known commentators, they comment in their Genesis work. They say, in the Bible, humility is often equated with trust and obedience and pride with independence and disobedience. Here they came together to strengthen themselves with their building and to become famous. They tried to avoid the very thing God wanted, and the way they chose to avoid it would make them famous, but not as they thought. Now, let's just be honest with ourselves. We're rarely without excuses to do what we want. I mean, if you need some, just give me a ring and I'll help you. Um, we're, we're very rarely without a loss of words when it comes to pursuing our own desires versus what God is asking us to do. And our heart is extremely deceitful. So they pursue building not just a city, but also a tower. And not just any type of tower, but a tower with its tops in the heavens. Now, before we move to verse 4, I just want to stop here for a second. This really struck me. Because I don't know about you, but like, if I choose to sin in my own life, I'm probably not going to like run towards God. 
Like we've talked about this a little bit. You know, the way the culture responds to things that have historically been sinful is they do one of two things, and we kind of do it too. We either hide it, so we hide sin, or we glorify it. So it's either we hide it as if God doesn't know what's going on, or we, we try to normalize it so much and glorify it so much that it's not even a big deal. Look what these, look what these folks did. The very place God dwells is where? This is not a trick question. The heavens. The building project is extremely ironic as well as filled with immense pride. <laughs> ironic in that the command they are disobeying was given by God who sits in the heavens and they're going towards him, which is weird. And it's prideful in that they not only seem to have thought they could reach God or maybe even surpass him, but also extremely prideful in that while in disobedience, they were so consumed with their ominous plan that there was no regard for the fact that it was absolutely foolish. It's a foolish plan. The very God you are disobeying, you are now attempting to reach his crib. That's crazy. But it's no different than how we live. Kenneth Matthews comments in his work on Genesis that the motive of the tower builders were as sinister as their predecessors in Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 6. This group of builders was so blinded by pride, the very strength they sought in their unity would ultimately be their greatest weakness. The creator God who spoke all things into existence and who literally had just wiped out all of humanity back in chapter 7 and 8, the only all-powerful God who is the beginning and the end of all creation, who is sovereign over all things, who sustains all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Their pride was so deep it was almost as if none of those truths were, as if none of those truths happened. And they were just there, like he just destroyed the whole earth, right? Yeah. A blazing pride that clouds the mind, that invades and controls the thoughts, that leads to insidious actions and leads to death. This is the pride we see before us. Um, let's look further in case you were questioning their motives. Some people would even say, well, maybe they didn't know what they were doing. Well, let's look at verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they knew exactly what they were doing. One, they wanted to make a name for themselves. The very first generation post-flood did not have to be taught to make a name for themselves. It's this innate sinfulness. We believe in the total depravity of man. I don't have to teach my kids how to sin. Here they are pursuing self-glorification with no regard for the glorification of the one who created them. Self-glorification will always lead to disobedience, whereas the glorification of God will lead to a life of righteousness. And we're, we're watching on display this unravel. And then they say at the end of verse 4, they say, lest we be dispersed, or so that we are not dispersed. They don't want to go, right? I don't want to go. I don't want to scatter. Here's where the fear comes in. And I think we can all relate to this. We're fearful. We're, we fear people and, and man-pleasing more than we fear what God thinks. We don't want to be dispersed. We want to pursue our own plan in order to avoid the plan that God has given us. It's this self-preservation mentality, right? It's not, it's not 
laying yourself out for the sake of others. In fact, our culture, this whole, like, do you do you. We've, we've even you know, talked about this through our study in Genesis. In the world now, you do you means, no, don't, don't suppress yourself in any capacity. Let the fullness of who you are come out. And don't let anybody push you down. Heaven forbid you actually sacrifice yourself a bit for the good of others. And the culture is throwing it at us. And here the people are doing it right before us. It's this self-preservation with a false, a side of false security. Kind of get fries with that. You'll see a quote on the screen by Derek Kinder. It's a long one, um, but it's a good one. So I kind of had to read it a few times. If you take pictures, I do. Um, I would go back and read it a couple times. But he says, The primeval history reaches its fruitless climax as a man, conscious of his new abilities, prepares to glorify and fortify himself by collective effort. The elements of this story are timelessly characteristic of the spirit of the world. This is so true, like especially in my world's context. The project is typically grandiose. Men describe it excitedly to one another as if it were the ultimate achievement, very much as modern man glories in space projects. At the same time, they betray their insecurities. They crowd together to preserve their identity and control their fortunes. The narrative captures the simultaneous absurdity and gravity of it. Even the materials are makeshift, as verse 3 remarks. Yet the builders are weaker still. There is irony in God's echo of their bustling. Go to, go to, with his own go to, let us go down. And the end is anticlimax. They left off the half-built city. It's all too apt a monument, an empty monument of the aspect of man. And I just love this statement. I put it all on there because it shook me to my core. Um, I, I love the comment about the three go-tos. If you were looking at ESV or a number of other, um, he actually says, uh, come let us. So it's the same thing. And so you see them say, come let us make bricks, and then later come let us build. And then we'll see God echo their presumptions when he says, come let us go down, as if almost to mock them. Um, and so we'll, we'll talk through that in a minute. So why did they do it? They, we've already discussed. They, have, they didn't start this because they had no idea what they were doing or they didn't know what their goal was. They, they knew exactly what they were doing. They, whether they could articulate it in the moment, like oftentimes, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Whether you and I can articulate it in the moment what we're doing in sin, we certainly can the next day, right? So we're looking here, and whether they could articulate it, they absolutely knew they were disobeying the direct command of the Lord in order to pursue their own glory and in order to avoid being scattered. It's amazingly ridiculous, yet incredibly sad. But I just want to step back for a minute. Um, I want us, the saints here, to take heed. Be reminded of 1 Corinthians 10 um, in verses 12 and 13, and I'll just summarize. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And in fact, the scriptures say, take heed lest you stumble. So don't, don't forget that we're the same. We're the same, right? Just because we weren't in the land of Shinar, the Tower of Babel, like, we're there. You know what I mean? We can find ourselves all over these pages. When, when have you maybe uh, deliberately disobeyed a direct command of the Lord that was given to you in Scripture? Or maybe uh, when have you pursued making a name for yourself and you, you've been so consumed with this that you're led to make some unimaginable choices? Maybe it's something as, as, as a simple comment that puffs you up and breaks someone down. 
when have we chosen a false sense of security or maybe this like insular safety or comfort instead of scattering and going for the sake of the gospel and making the name of Christ great? This could be in any capacity. I mean, this could be in parenting. This could be in where you choose to live. This could be in who you choose to be friends with. It, it's like this unwillingness in some senses to identify ourselves with Christ, particularly in like the workplace. Sometimes I struggle like, because you're like, oh, what are they going to think? Or what are they going to do with me and my job? Or, you know, as soon as they know that I'm that guy, you know, like they're not going to whatever. And like, we can justify it all day long, but at the end of the day, it boils down to that. Like, maybe we choose comfort instead of glorifying God. Or, or what about like success and accomplishment? When, when have we for one second thought that we were the starter and the sustainer of any accomplishment or success that we've ever seen in our life? As if our strength and our ability, I used to say this to Amy because she was a TBI nurse, like as if I'm causing my brain to send the synapses to my mouth to speak right now. Like I'm not doing that. I'm not causing my heart to expand and contract. I'm not causing my lungs, sorry, my heart to pump and my lungs to expand and contract. Colossians tells me God's doing that. I mean, who in the heck am I to think for one minute that any accomplishment, I, like I'm just trying to help us like tease this out a little bit. Maybe in our own context. You know what I mean? We can all relate to these experiences. And what I'm not going to do is just browbeat and lead you there. Don't worry. We're in this together. We're going to get out of the boat. I promise. But ultimately, the choices of the people in Genesis chapter 11 are just like the choices that you and I make every day. The sinful heart, apart from Christ, always desires to disobey. Take that to the bank. David says, the heart is, is deceitful. The heart is prone to wander. Someone ever tells you, listen to this from one of your pastors, if someone ever tells you, follow your heart, you need to run the other way. No, you don't really, because they're probably cool people. But they don't really mean what they think they mean, I'm sure, or they don't really mean you know, what we're talking about here. But the heart, the heart doesn't lead you. The heart isn't subtracted from the equation, but sometimes you just do what's right and your heart will follow. If you always do what your heart wants, you're in trouble, right? So this brings us to a, to a pretty big need, right? We need to see a gracious response from the Creator God. And you see this over and over and over again. He's just promised that He won't do what He just did again. And now the people are at it again. You see it all the way through the Old Testament. You know, judges happens, and they sin, and they send a judge and saves them, and they sin and send a judge and save them. And, you know, then into David, you know, and then all the way through the Old Testament, and then years of silence, and then Jesus shows up and they reject Him. And it's like, what in the world is going on? But it's the same cyclical system and it's like we'll never learn and so look at verses five through nine i want to see how god responds it's pretty cool he says and the lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built and the lord said behold they are one people and they have one language and this is the only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them come let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So number the first thing we see in, in chapter verse 5, the Lord responds. He actually comes down to the city, and he says to the children of man, this should take your mind back to the, the line of Adam, sons of Adam. So um, that's a good indicator that the sin of Adam is still rolling strong, right? And we see that all the way through 
where we're at today. And then in verse 6, it says, The Lord speaks. Behold, they are one people and one language, and this is only the beginning, right? Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible. Now stop there for a minute. I don't want you to overthink this. This is not by any means insinuating that man could overcome God's sovereign rule and control. Um, at risk of oversimplification and for the sake of time, it basically means this. The Lord provides us as humans some type of freedom and liberty to choose to exalt ourselves. But there are limits. And at some point, God intervenes, and that's grace to us. That's in his sovereign will and plan. This is very similar for those parents out there to like a loving parent. Um, you know, you sometimes have to let your kid fall, you know, or fail. Um, but at some point in certain situations, you are going to intervene because you can foresee this like self-destruction. You know what I mean? So it's, 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 it could be likened to that. Oswald and Ross comment again that the Lord recognized that his creation had a desire to gain strength and unity and that it had huge potential for great danger. Okay, so that's what's going on here. So he's like, we got to stop this. Um, they, they continue to say, thus what they would not do in obedience, God did through his judgment. And what they would have done in disobedience, God prevented by confusing and dispersing them. So in this sense, the work of God is preventative as well as punitive, we would say. And then look at verse 7, the Lord's judgment. What was his judgment? He says, come, let us go down there. I love this. It's like this mocking, okay, come, let us do this. Okay, well, then fine. Well, come, let us go down there. Um, there's also some uh, glimpses here of the Trinitarian relationship. The Trinity existed even before creation, so come, let us would make sense when referencing the Godhead. Now, we see here that the Lord is not just going to come down, but he's going to do something. He's going to confuse. He's going to undo their work. And so the first thing is divide and confuse language so that why? They will not understand each other's speech. Pretty straightforward. What many thought in this group of people would be their greatest strength, that is their unity, God destroyed with a swift judgment. Okay, you think your greatest strength is a great strength? And you're in, disobeying, you're, you're in disobedience to me? I'm going to get rid of it. And then secondly, he disperses or divides them. He puts them all over the face of the earth so that they're no longer united. What was probably one of the greatest fears of many of these people being dispersed, God brought to fruition in a single action. Okay, you won't go? Oh, actually, yeah, you will. And I love it. You know, uh, yet, I, I love this statement, yet just to be very transparent with you, I, I fear this when I lack faith. If I could just be real honest with you. Amy and I have this saying in our lives, and we've said it numerous seasons, that the last place we want to be is out of the will of the Lord. Yet often the last place I want to be in my sinful heart when I'm lacking faith is in the will of the Lord. Our incredible battle against the flesh is one that must be submitted to Christ. And this is a battle that we mustn't grow dull to, always fighting against what may actually cause us to disobey God. How many times has our greatest sin struggle and or our biggest fear ultimately led to some of the deepest and most faith-filled times in our relationship with Christ? Look at the latter part of verse 8. He says, and they, they look... they. 
they, they, they abandoned the project. I mean, this big, like, grandiose project, it was like, it's done. It's a, it's a memory. And I love that quote we read earlier. It's like a monument, an empty, dead monument. The very building activity they, they sought to keep them united ultimately dispersed them. The very building activity they sought to make them famous among men succeeded, but in a way they never imagined. They were so blinded by what some would call temporary insanity of sin, the reality of their doom was but a distant vapor. And then we see this gracious response of God. How do we see God's grace in this? The Lord is gracious in his judgment, and we'll see the gospel in his judgment. He's gracious and merciful. And if you look back in verse 7, he says, come, let us go down. This is not weakness on God's part. In fact, what, what this really is, is this is a God that is so loving and so actively and interested and involved in his creation that out of grace, he seeks to intervene to stop them from destroying themselves. That's God's grace. How has that taken place in your life? Was it somebody that just shared the gospel with you? Was it a time in your life where you were just wrecked and someone spoke peace to you? How are we doing that in others' lives? I, I just it, it, it rocked me to watch that video yesterday from the president of this seminary. And, he's, and he speaks of, we have peace. There's no other peace in this world but the gospel and the scriptures. We have it. We can speak peace into people's lives. God's gracious. This is honestly just a glimpse of the New Testament. We could chase it all the way down. I'm trying to be cognizant of time here. We could chase it all the way to the New Covenant. Jesus came down to us to live amongst us, right? Emmanuel, God with us. He didn't send someone in his place. In fact, the New Testament is very emphatic about that. He himself will return and get us as well. He paid the ultimate price on our behalf while we were yet sinners, Romans 5, so that we can avoid the ultimate outcome of where our sin will take us. God has a sovereign plan amidst his judgment. Don't ever forget that. No matter how bad it seems, even in the midst of the Ukraine scenario, and I'm not saying that's God's judgment on Ukraine, so don't hear me say that. I'm not a prophet. But even in the midst of some of the most difficult circumstances, God has a sovereign plan. He is still in control. The scriptures say that therefore its name was called Babel, there in verse 9, because the Lord confused their languages of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Why did he do this? Why did he disperse them? Well, that's easy. So that they would do his initial command. So that they would go and make a name for himself. So that they would go make his name great. So that they would go make his name famous. We're getting closer to landing the plane, folks. Um, I won't read verses 10 through 32. I actually thought about making Taylor read that to us. Uh, but you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> But what I do want to do is I want to make a few comments about this passage. Um, I think I've got it. Yep. Adam to Shem to Abram. Um, you know, you see sons of Adam again, right? In verse 5, um, the sin of Adam continues. Even though Noah's family was the only survivor, by the way, the sin of Adam continues. So 
you've got this genealogy here in, in verses 10 through 32, and it actually looks a little different, actually a lot different than the genealogy in chapter 5. In chapter 5, this genealogy focuses on the death of each generation. You see this like so-and-so died, and so-and-so died, and so-and-so died. But then when you get to chapter 11, this genealogy focuses on life. It says begot or fathered. Fathered, so-and-so fathered, so-and-so fathered, so-and-so. So Genesis 5 stresses death before the flood, and Genesis 11 stresses life and blessing and expansion. It's a genealogy of life and what is to come. It's much like the genealogy you see in Luke chapter 3, what some would call uh, this uh, genealogy of life in Jesus. And so then we get to verse 27 and all the way through 32, and this sets the stage for the Abrahamic covenant. Now, we've talked to you some of this before, months back, maybe a year ago, I don't know. But I am going to give you uh, the, the, the covenants in order, the main five covenants um, in order. And you can take a picture of it if you want. You don't have to. Uh, but I want to quickly look at the order, and then I want to dig into each one briefly because I think it helps us get from Genesis 11 all the way to the Gospel in the New Testament. So the first one we see is the Noahic covenant. We've already covered that. It's in Genesis 8, right? The second one is Abrahamic covenant. It starts here in Genesis 12. We see it in Genesis 15 and 17. The Mosaic Covenant we'll then see for Israel in Exodus 19. The Davidic Covenant hits in 2 Samuel 7, kind of 722-ish, into Psalms, a couple spaces there. And then we get to the New Covenant, which actually starts in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then we see it come to full fruition in Matthew 26 and Luke 22. So when I say this sets the stage for the Abrahamic Covenant, what I mean by that is Abram enters the scene. Now, don't be confused. If you don't know your Old Testament history, that's okay. Um, Abram and Abraham are the same person. Jesus renames him Abraham in chapter 17. Abraham means uh, the father of many nations. So same person. When we say Abram and Abraham, interchangeable. I'm quite sure he was probably not the only Abram, but the Abram we're discussing is the Abraham. So uh, look quickly at verses 1 through 3 in Genesis 12. I'm going to read it. I'm going to walk quickly through it. We're going to look at the, the covenants, and then we're going, to, we're going to close our time on how we respond. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in verse 2, we see this like really great, important process beginning. In fact, most scholars would say that this is the central theme of Genesis. And from this central theme and throughout the rest of Genesis, the theme runs clearly, and then we can trace the covenants throughout the entirety of Scripture. So in verse 2, God promises to do three things, very simply. I think I put them on the screen. Make him a great nation, to bless him, and to make his name great. And I'll stop there on number three. To make his name great. That seems oddly familiar. What were the people trying to do in Genesis 11? To make their own name great. And Jesus is like, no. That's not how this works. God is like, nope, sorry. You're going to make my name great. And then if I choose to make your name great, cool. But it doesn't work the other way around. So God's like, Okay, we've moved on, Abrahamic covenant, I'm going to bless through this line, and I'm going to make your name great. And then if you continue down, if Abram's obedient, God is also committing himself to three more promises. One, to bless those who bless him. Two, to curse those who curse him. And three, to bless the families of the earth through him. 
So I don't have time this morning to dig into the depths of this. We could spend two or three weeks on this easily. But for the sake of time, Matthew Lawrence comments that the Abrahamic covenant is the beginnings of the formal revelation of the covenant of grace itself. This is the beginning. Like Noahic kind of jump starts it, and then all of a sudden God starts unveiling the mystery that will be revealed in Christ. So look, look at me just look, look with me for just a minute, and I want to trace the path through the covenants. Um, so it's kind of small. Uh, get out your reading glasses. But at this point, we've already covered the Noahic covenant that God would never destroy humanity again, but instead preserve the whole world. And we move towards the fulfillment of Genesis 3, which is ultimately rescuing humanity through the seed of the woman, right? Bruising the head. And then we get to the Abrahamic covenant. God promises to make Abraham a great nation and bless all of his descendants. Now, Mosaic. This further unfolds and reconfirms the Abrahamic covenant. So we're kind of on this track together. Israel will be God's special possession. Israel will be a kingdom of priests. Israel will be a holy nation. God will fight for Israel and overcome her enemies. And God will treat Israel with grace and mercy and forgive her sins. So this is being further unfolded, further unfolded. Then you get the Davidic king, uh, covenant. God's unconditional promise or his covenant with, 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 uh, with us to send his Messiah through the line of David and through the tribe of Judah, and this Messiah would establish not, not a kingdom that we think of, but an eternal kingdom that will never end, that would endure forever. And then it all climaxes in the new covenant. God's promise that he will forgive sin and restore those whose hearts trust in Christ. Jesus Christ is the covenantal climax. And so Genesis 12, we're just getting going. God's beginning to unveil his plan. I put a quote up there from Whitney Woolard. She's written some for the Bible Project. And I love how she articulates this. Read, read with me. It's just a really good summary of kind of walking through the covenants. She says, Do you see now how the covenants progressively build upon one another, forming a backbone of sorts to the redemptive storyline? God preserved the world through Noah. He initiated redemption through Abraham. He formed a special people through Israel. He promised a shepherd king through David and then fulfilled all of the covenantal promises through Jesus. With each covenant, God's promises and plans to save the world through the seed of the woman become clearer and clearer until we finally see that redemption can only come through King Jesus. So circle back to verse 9. The Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. The Lord himself does this. He causes it, and it's his plan to do so. He is beginning to reveal what we would eventually call this global expansion plan of grace to all peoples and all nations through us. Our simple call is to trust and obey. I used to love that song when I was young. Just simple. Now you're humming it. Trust and obey, if you know it. Some of you are like, I don't understand that. Trust and obey Christ. Believe on him and seek to make his name great amongst the nations. Michael gave us this quote last week by John Piper. He says, the languages of the world are the judgment of God on sin, and they are designed by God for the global glory of Jesus Christ. Piper continues actually to assist us in thinking about how these consequences 
magnify Christ. I want to zip through them quickly. The first thing he gives us is this idea that Christians are guarded. He says, God's division of the world into different languages hinders the rise of a global, monothelistic, anti-Christian state that would have the power to simply wipe us all out. We often think that the diversity of languages and the diversity of cultures and peoples and the political states is a hindrance to word evangelism, or that it maybe is a hindrance to spread the glory of Christ. That's not the way God sees it. God is more concerned about the dangers of human uniformity than he is about human diversity. We humans are far too evil to be allowed to unite in one language and one government. The gospel of the glory of Christ spreads better and flourishes more because 6,500 languages it is spoken in, not in spite of it. So Christians are guarded. Secondly, pride is destroyed. So after that first point, someone may ask, but isn't there going to be, like, in the last days, this great global government where Christians are, in fact, persecuted everywhere? And the short answer is yes. Well, how do we explain that? Well, I'm glad you asked. The last day, God will loosen the restraint he has put on the nations. They will swell with the pride of Babylon. Christians will suffer. And then in one instance, Christ will come from his infinite heights and slay the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth, 2 Thessalonians 2, and Babylon will be no more. The pride of man will be eliminated from earth. The story of Genesis 11 is foreshadowing this. The victory there and at the end is the victory of Christ. Thirdly, every group claimed, I love this, the authority of the power of Jesus is magnified because he lays claim on every language and every people. They're mine. He's a jealous God. He loves his people and he wants his people. In the end, it magnifies the authority and the power of Christ to make disciples in every language. His power is all the more glorious because it breaks into so many different languages and peoples and brings salvation to them all. Third, the gospel is glorified. Fourth, sorry, the gospel is glorified. A great part of the glory of the gospel is that it is not provincial or regional. It's not a tribal religion. It breaks into every language and every people. If there were no diversity of languages, if the spectacular sin of Babel had not happened with its judgment, the global glory of the gospel of Christ would not shine as beautifully as it does in the prism of a thousand languages. And then fifth, Jesus is praised. Finally, the praise that Jesus receives from all of the nations is more beautiful because of its diversity than it would have been if there were only one language and one people to sing. Revelation 5, 9 through 10 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says this After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Praise God that He's claimed the nations. And we see that beginning in chapter 11 in Genesis. Check this out.
There's your brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Christ is holding them fast. There's a global design behind all of this, and it starts all the way back in Genesis. Even amidst the sin of man, the Lord graciously works and invites us to take part in his kingdom, and not just in the personal benefits of the kingdom. That's all good, but also in its expansion. The various people groups and the various languages and the various nations and all their diversity that we see in the world is not some haphazard result of man's sin. It was God's judgment, but it was also his plan. A plan to glorify God and to do what was best for his people. Michael referenced last week, again, um, this idea of uh, the theology of humanity. He also talked about another theology we won't go uh, into. Uh, but it goes hand in hand with what he talked through, and it further bolsters 